come in from the storm, pull up a seat by the fire. We're sitting over Mount's Bay, where the storm is raging outside. You can hear the wind howling. And the locals say that it's not just the storm that carries on, it's the devil himself who lives down there in that bay. And tonight, he wants to climb up over those rocks and drag us right over the edge of the cliff. Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. So, in part inspired by last episode's British satanic mysteries, I'm carrying on that theme with a bonus episode about the classic Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes story, The Devil's Foot, published in 1910. Let's see here. Let's get it right. Let's get it right. Let's get it right. Published in the Strand Magazine in 1910. A Reminiscence of Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. What I'm going to do, I've never done this before. There are podcasts I know and love that do this on the regular. I'm going to share an old-time radio version of this 1910 story. This version is not the sort of classic duo, actor duo that does Holmes and Watson, most notably Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. This is actually the year after Basil Rathbone got sick of doing Sherlock Holmes constantly because they, they were both acting in like a series, serial films of, of Holmes together f- through the 40s, I think even the late 30s. And they were also doing radio. So a ton of Sherlock Holmes content from that duo. Nigel Bruce stays on the show and they recruit a, a B actor, Tom Conway, Tom's brother... George Sanders, who had a, a much more prominent career in Hollywood in the studio system. His brother, Tom, tries to strike his fortune in what was then Rhodesia and South Africa and comes up broke, ends up in the acting business with the BBC, comes over to Hollywood and stars in different uh, sort of B-list films and gets his break in 46-47 with Nigel Bruce in a, a single season of It's the New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And for many, Conway's kind of a he's kind of a cult favorite in terms of his uh, voice acting skills. And he's a little bit more deferential to Nigel Bruce. Um, reading online, apparently Nigel Bruce didn't like looking like a complete idiot in contrast to Rathbone's Holmes. And so Conway's a little bit of a kinder, kinder and gentler Holmes. He's not out to make Nigel Bruce look like a buffoon. And so this this season, this one season, it collapses uh, because of apparently conflicts in the writers' room. Also, the, the fact that Nigel Bruce was going to get top billing on the next season, and it's kind of like uh, in in the Michael Keaton Jack Nicholson Batman movie when. Nicholson gets top billing over Keaton uh, in a movie called Batman, one of my favorite things ever. I grew up listening to this sort of old-time radio Sherlock Holmes, and there's other forms of like crime pulp fiction 
that I'm like sort of more intellectually into than the Sherlock Holmes model. I've been doing work on police procedurals and police films and religion lately. But I, I've come back to these radio shows. I just find them like the most comforting. <laughs> I, I, I like the I like the organ, though there is less of an organ in the in this season. But I really like the organ music in this stuff. I, I like I like the voice actors, the actors. Another thing with Sherlock Holmes as like sort of my old time radio late night listening comfort food. There's a lot of nostalgia just sort of written into that category of old time radio in the old time part. Obviously, I am not old enough to be nostalgic for the actual period when these programs were being played on the radio. I am nostalgic for being a little kid and getting like these cases of cassette tapes from my extended family as a present for like sort of their their nerdy nephew and grandson uh, and listening to these mysteries and sort of hanging out with my with my younger brother and just like and just like sort of staying up late at night being scared of what we're listening to then having listened to the episode so many times just like sort of being like soothed to sleep by by this sort of melodrama and blood curdling screams and martians invading the world and and all those sort of otr hits so yeah that's that's sort of what got me back into sherlock holmes a little bit lately and uh why i'm happy to share it with you Obviously, the title sort of provides a hint at the tie-in. It is not just a sort of cheap, flourish illusion with the title. I think the the idea of the devil that is developed in the short story, which I will link to, and also in this radio play, kind of give us some interesting content for how the devil mattered for an early 20th century context, a sort of colonial imperial context, and I think that we'll have a really interesting discussion about that. But first, I just want to I want to get us right into the episode. These you know these episodes are pretty short, and you know the sort of original c- commercials are there. The whole period feel is there. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, and after the episode, I will give a few notes by way of interpretation, by way of sort of drawing a few contrasts between the short story and the radio version. And yeah, that will be our bonus. So without further ado, Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce in The Devil's Foot. Kreml Hair Tonic and Kreml Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Now suppose we begin by calling on Mr. Holmes' biographer and friend, the genial Dr. Watson. We find him in his comfortable, firelit study, leaning back in his easy chair, ready to begin his story. The fire feels good tonight, doesn't it, Dr. Watson? Indeed it does, but sit down, Mr. Bell, sit down and let's get on with the story. You are in a hurry, aren't you? Well, I suppose I am. As a matter of fact, the adventure I'm going to relate was one of the most gruesome experiences I ever hoped to encounter. Perhaps I'd better not tell it after all. Brings up memories Oh, that, uh... come now, Dr. Watson. You're not going back on us now. You promised last week to tell us... Uh, what was the name of the story? The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Or the Cornish Horror. The very thought of it makes my blood run cold. I can hardly wait, Dr. Watson. But first, men, 
I'd like to remind you about this famous modern trend in hair grooming, which is preferred among top-flight executives and America's most successful men. It's called Cremel Hair Tonic. One of the many reasons Cremel has become such a nationwide favorite is that it never plasters the hair down with sticky goo, which makes your hair and scalp feel so dirty. It never gives hair that old-fashioned, greasy, patent leather look. You see, Cremel is a very highly specialized hair tonic. It contains a unique and utterly different combination of hair grooming ingredients, which is found in no other hair tonic. That's why Kreml keeps unruly hair so neatly in place longer, with such a handsome, healthy-looking luster. What I especially like about Kreml is that after you use it, you can run your hand back over your hair and your hair never feels sticky or dirty. No greasy film comes off on your hand. Yet Kreml hair keeps hair in perfect order throughout the busiest day always looking so handsome and well-groomed. K-R-E-M-L, Kreml hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, how about the devil's foot or the Cornish Horace? It was the spring of the year 1897. Holmes's iron constitution had shown some signs of giving way due to a particularly arduous and nerve-wracking winter. In March of that year, Dr. Moore Agar of Harley Street gave positive injunctions that Holmes get out into the country for a protracted rest. Well, the third week in March found us settled in a small cottage near Poldu Bay at the further extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. Isn't that rather a bleak country for convalescent, Dr. Watson? Bleak is putting it mildly. I've never known such grim surroundings, but it suited Holmes admirably. He seemed to blossom in that weird and foreboding fog-swept district. Just as natural perversion as I suppose. Oh, I dare say. Our little whitewashed cottage stood on a grassy headland. From its windows, we looked down upon the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay, that old death trap, with its fringe of black cliffs and surge-swept reefs. In every direction, there were traces of some vanished race which had left as its sole record strange monuments of stone. Holmes spent most of his time pottering round these weird ruins... Everything was going along peacefully until one morning our simple and healthy routine was violently interrupted. and We were precipitated into the middle of a series of gruesome and nerve-shattering events. Quite a surf this morning, eh, Watson? You can see the spray flung up against our windows and we're a good hundred feet above sea level. I don't think I shall venture out today. Hmm, bad weather. Old boy is certainly lashing himself into a fine frenzy. What do you mean, the old boy, Holmes? The devil, Watson. The devil himself. Oh, what are you raving about? Didn't I tell you that the natives hereabouts refer to that seething death trap down there as the devil's cauldron? They think the old gentleman himself lives there. How unsettling. Yes, a very interesting superstition. You know, Watson, this locality is supposed to have been the last resort of devil worship in England. Oh, really? Well, Many scientists believe that those huge prehistoric monuments of stone were part of a temple given over to the Prince of Darkness. Preposterous. Oh, I don't know. It's as logical as most of the theories that endeavor to explain their existence. The superstition goes on to say that when the devil was finally driven from his temple, he took refuge in the bay down there. Yes. They claim that on stormy nights you can hear his hoofbeats as he races up and down the rocks. Holmes, what are you trying to do? Give me a case of nerves. Hello, what's this? What's this? Someone is running up our path, his cloak flapping about like a giant bat. Why, it's that Tregenis fellow, the one who boards with the vicar. Mortimer Tregenis, eh? I wonder what's happened. 
face as white as a sheet. Couldn't look more upset if he'd seen Beals above himself. Open the door, Watson. Mr. Holmes, thank heaven I find you at home. The most terrible thing has happened. I can scarcely believe it. Oh, sit down, my dear fellow, sit down. That's better. Now, perhaps you can tell us what has happened. My family, my, my sister, we were playing cards. Oh, slowly I, now, take your time. My family, my sister and my two brothers. It's too terrible. Why, just last night I was with them at the house. Tredanic warfare, it's called. All well and happy. We played cards. And now, without warning, I can't believe Easy, Tregenis, easy. There's a good fellow. I... I left them last night. My sister Brenda, my two brothers, Owen and George. What time was that? The, the clock in the church steeple over at Polo was chiming ten o'clock as I closed the front door behind me. I'd left them all in the card room, laughing and in good spirits. And? This morning, being an early riser, I was out taking a walk before breakfast when... Dr. Richards overtook me in his carriage with the news that he'd been sent for and a most urgent call from Tredanic Warfare. Something terrible had happened to my family. I jumped in beside him and he whipped up the horses. And what did you find? Oh, Mr. Holmes, it was terrible, ghastly. My two brothers and my sister, there in the card room, just as I'd left them. But what a change. What a ghastly change. Yes? Brenda lay back stone dead in her chair. And my two brothers sat on each side of her. Laughing and shouting and singing. The senses stricken clean out of them. And all three of them, my poor dead sister and my two demented brothers, retained upon their faces an expression of ghastly horror. A, a convulsion of terror. How terrible. Yes. Dr. Richard was so overcome at the sight that he fell fainting into a chair. Hmm. Anyone else in the house besides your sister and brothers? Only Mrs. Porter, the old housekeeper. I presume it was she who found them this morning. Yes. She always goes through the house in the mornings, adding it out before the family comes down. When she reached the card room, the shock was too much for her. She's had a nervous collapse. We had to put her to bed. Yeah, no wonder. An exceptional case. Most exceptional. That's what we thought. We could find no traces of strangers in or around the house. Nothing was stolen, nothing touched. The vicar believes you are the only one who can solve the case, Mr. Holmes. He insisted I come to you. I shall be only too glad to handle the matter, of course. But uh, first I must ask you a few questions. Anything, Mr. Holmes, anything. To begin with, Mr. Tregenis, why do you live with a vicar separated from your family? Well, as a matter of fact, we had a slight argument a few years ago about some property it was. But that was all settled long ago. We were on the best of terms. Now, Mr. Tregenis, about last night... Uh, do you recall anything, anything at all, that was out of the ordinary? There was one thing that occurs to me. As we sat at the card table, my back was to the window. George was facing me. Suddenly I saw him look hard over my shoulder out of the window. I turned quickly, and just for a moment I thought I caught a glimpse of something, something moving. Man or animal? I don't quite know. My brother said he had the same feeling. It's uncanny, that's what it is. Something came into that room, and that something killed my sister and dashed the light of reason from my brother's mind. Something devilish it was. If that should prove to be the case, I fear I shall be of very little assistance, Mr. Tregenis. But short of wrestling with his satanic majesty, I think perhaps we can solve your problem. Come, Watson. We'd best go down to Tredanic Water at once. This is the house, Mr. Holmes. 
Whose carriage is this coming down the drive with the blinds down? There's somebody in it. Listen. <laughs> My brothers. My poor brothers. It, it's Dr. Richard's carriage. He's taking them to Helston Asylum. It's too awful. My poor brother. Easy, Tregenis, easy. Pull yourself together. I, I'll do my best. Good man. Which are the windows of the card room? Uh, this one here. Oh, look out, Holmes. You've upset the washing can. Dear, dear, how clumsy of me. Sorry, Tregenis. I'm afraid I've drenched your boots. But no matter, Mr. Holmes, no matter. Shall we go in? Yes. I have seen all I need to see out here. This way. The card room is over here. Do you notice anything, Watson? No, I can't say that I do. This is the card room. Hmm. I see the window's still open. The housekeeper left it that way, I presume? Yes, she says it was locked on the inside when she came in. Quite so. I think we may close it now. Well, I'll do it, Holmes. No, let me. Hmm. Candle's quite gutted out. Yes, card's still on the table. They had not risen from their chairs, I take it, and you left at ten. That sets the hour of death at some time before 11. Hmm. Fire burned out. Why a fire? Had they always a fire in this small room on a spring evening? It was cold and damp last night, Mr. Holmes. The fire was lit shortly after my arrival. I see. Well, that seems to be about all. No disturbance of any kind. Strange. Oh, come along, Holmes. Come along. The room gives me the jumps. There's something about the atmosphere. As though death was still hovering in the air. I wonder. Come, Watson. We will return to our cottage. Should uh, anything occur to me, Mr. Tregenis, I shall communicate with you. It won't do, Watson. It won't do. All the facts are negative. Well, do you think Mr. Tregenis's account of his actions last night was truthful? Quite, Watson. Quite. You remember the incident of the spilt watering can? I did that to obtain an impression of his foot. I take it you succeeded? I did. With that print as a sample, I was able to trace his movements last night. His story is correct. He left the house at about ten, went straight back to the vicarage and did not return. Nor did anyone else enter or leave that house. Then it must have been the man or animal they, they thought they saw in the bushes. He must have returned and frightened them to death. There was no such man or animal, Watson. Last night was a dark night. Anyone who had the wish to frighten these people would be compelled to put his face against the glass before he could be seen. Well? There is a three-foot flower border outside the cardroom window. But there are absolutely no footprints there. Yes, but, but, but that means... It means that... Mr. Tregenis' sister and her two brothers were alone when death struck the sister down and drove the brothers insane. But, Holmes, that would be supernatural. I hope not, Watson. Look, look, here I comes another not. visitor up our path. Stranger this time. Big, savage-looking fellow. That, my dear Watson, is none other than the famous Dr. Leon Sterndale. Sterndale, the lion hunter and explorer? Exactly. Oh, what's he doing in this neighborhood? Oh, I've heard he owns a little cottage about five miles down the coast. They tell me he lives there absolutely by himself when he isn't off on one of his expeditions. Never mind, Watson. I'll do the honors myself. Come in, Dr. Sterndale, come in. Mr. Holmes? Yes, and this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Holmes, I've come to you about the tragedy to Danick Walther. 
The police are utterly at a loss. You have a keener brain. Pardon me, Dr. Sterndale, but why are you so concerned in this affair? Well, you see, during my many residences in this locality, I've come to know the family of Tregenis very well. I see. Their, their horrible fate has been a great shock to me, Mr. Holmes. I'm so sorry. As a matter of fact, I was on my way to Africa. I got as far as Plymouth when the news reached me this morning. I came straight back to help in the inquiry. But uh, that would make you lose your ship. One sailed for Africa this afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. I can take the next. When did you last see the Tregenis family, Dr. Sterndale? I saw Brenda, uh, Miss Tregenis, three days ago, just as I was leaving for Plymouth. Oh. So you have been in Plymouth for the last three days? Yes, in Plymouth. But how did you get the news so quickly? Surely the Plymouth papers didn't carry an account of the matter in this morning's edition? I received a telegram. Telegram. Might I ask from whom? You're very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. It is my business, Dr. Sterndale. Very well. The telegram was sent by the vicar, Mr. Roundkey. I see. And now, Mr. Holmes, have you reached any conclusions? Conclusions? No. That would be a trifle premature. But I have every hope of bringing this matter to a satisfactory termination. Satisfactory to me, that is. Would you mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction? I, uh... I do not feel that this is the moment to answer that question, Dr. Sterndale. Oh, and I see that I've been wasting my time. I need not prolong this visit. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hmm. Close mouth fellow, Dr. Sterndale, eh, isn't he, Holmes? He told me more than he realized, Watson. But he knows even more. How could he if he was in Plymouth? But was he, Watson? That statement is something for us to look into. In just a moment, we'll rejoin Sherlock Holmes as he endeavors to solve the strange mystery of Tredanic water. But first, men, remember if you want to keep your hair handsome and healthy looking, one of the first requisites is a hygienic scalp. So why settle for just any hairdressing when you can enjoy the extra advantages of a highly specialized hair tonic like Cremel? Cremel contains a special combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. This is why it keeps unruly hair neatly in place longer with a rich, healthy-looking luster. Yet Cremel never gives hair that cheap, greasy, patent leather look. It never leaves hair feeling sticky, gummy, or dirty. Your hair and scalp always look and feel so clean with Cremel. And if your hair is so dry it breaks and falls when you comb it, start using Cremel at once. Let it make your hair feel softer, more pliable, and look as if it had some body to it. Cremel is also fine to lubricate a dry scalp. At the same time, it removes dandruff flakes. A quick massage with Cremel helps stimulate the cutaneous circulation of the scalp. Notice how alive, how invigorated your scalp feels. So for better groomed hair, a more hygienic scalp Change to Cremel at once. Buy a bottle of Cremel at any drug counter. Ask for an application at your barber shop. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel Hair Tonic. I say, Holmes, must you go on smoking that foul pipe? The atmosphere's so thick I can hardly see across the room as it is. Oh, dear, I feel depressed. 
Who knows what evil thing is stalking abroad in, in this neighborhood? Light the lamp, Watson. It's the gathering twilight that makes it gloomy. Rubbish. Look here, Holmes. What about that Dr. Sterndale? Do you think he did it? No, Watson. I've been in communication with his Plymouth Hotel. His story was correct. He had been there for the past three days, and he did receive a telegram from the vicar this morning. Oh, and he couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the Tugenes tragedy last night. Quite. I didn't think he had a connection with the tragedy. But there is a connection with... Now what? Mr. Holmes! Oh, Mr. Holmes! Open the door, Watson. Ah, my dear vicar, come in, come in. Dear me, you look as though you'd seen a ghost. It's tracked him down, the curse of the family. He's dead, dead with that same look of terror on his face. Who's dead? Mortimer Trigenis, in his study at the vicarage. Great Scott. My servant found him there, sitting beside his table, his face turned toward the window and distorted with that same convulsion of fear that marked the features of his sister. Oh, my poor Paris. Satan himself is loose among us. We are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes. Devil-ridden. <laughs> This was his study, Mr. Holmes. Mm, depressing atmosphere. It was worse. I had the servant open the window. He's quite ill from shock, poor fellow. What a terrible look on Tregenis's face, Holmes. The whole body is contorted and convulsed in a very paroxysm of fear. You've never seen death in this form before, Watson? No, never. You know of no poison that would have this effect? Good heavens, no. Hmm. Lamp is lit. It's burning over an hour, notes the oil consumed. And yet, darkness has just set in. Did anyone call at the vicarage this afternoon? No. I was out myself, but my servant says he let no one in. Then Tregenis was alone when he... I wonder. The window was shut at the time of his death, but the lamp was lit. Curious. The window. Let's see. The window. Yes, by Jove, I think I've found something. What's that you're putting in your pocket, Holmes? And the lamp. Of course, the lamp. Notice this powder which has been spilled on the base of the lamp? Red brown powder. Give me an envelope, Watson. I must have these specks of powder. Why are you so excited about the powder, Holmes? Because it contains the solution of our mystery, Watson. It is the source and the solution. you haven't touched your supper. Mm. What a foul night. The wind's rising again. Oh, have another cup of tea and be quiet. Watson. I don't want to be quiet. I want to talk. I'm tired of waiting here listening to that blasted wind and the roar of the water down there below. Why did you send for Dr. Sterndale? Because he is an authority on obs obscure African poisons. Poisons? Why are you interested in poisons? Watson, there are two striking points in common in both cases under observation. Yes? In both cases, the atmosphere of the room had a curious effect on the persons who first entered it. The housekeeper and the vicar's servant were both overcome, as was the doctor who was called That's in. That's right. I hadn't thought of that. The room was still stuffy when we entered it. Right. And in each case, there was combustion going on in the room. The fire in the first case, the lamp in the second, and the lamp was not necessary. It was still daylight when it was lit. Yes, but I still don't see uh, what... Something was burned in each case which produced an atmosphere causing strange toxic effects. An unknown poison. Good heavens. I believe we have a sample of that poison in the brown powder spilled on the base of the lamp. Well, how are you going to prove it? I'm going to burn some of that powder. Notice its effect. Just a small pinch of powder. Yes. 
Uh, perhaps you'd better leave the room, Watson. And leave you alone in here? Certainly not. I warn you, it's risky. Confound that wind. Come along, come along. Let's get it on with it and get it over. Very well. Uh, place your chair opposite mine. Then we can watch each other for developments. If anything alarming happens, we can end the experiment. All right. Come on. I'm ready. Good. I put a pinch of the powder into our lamp. Oh, I say, what a... What a filthy smell. Hmm. Musky, subtle, nauseous. Listen to the wind, Holmes. I'm afraid. I don't know why. That wind. I can feel my hair rising. Holmes, do you see it? That cloud bank, whirling, black and sinister. It's monstrous. It's concealing something, something too wicked to imagine. Holmes, it's coming nearer and nearer. Can't you smell it? Sulfur and brimstone. You hear that, Holmes? It's hoofbeats. Hoofbeats. I know what it is. I can see it. I can't stand this. It's too terrible. Holmes! Watch it for the love of heaven. Don't give in. Don't breathe. I'll smash the window. I'll smash it. There. That's better. Oh. Breathe in, oh. Watson. Breathe it in. It's good, clean air. Oh. Why, Joe, what an arrow escape. I had no idea it was so powerful. I thought I, I, thought I saw... I, thought I know. I, uh... It's a poison that affects the nerve centers of the imagination. The strain is enough to kill a man or drive him crazy. Hello, there's someone knocking at the door. Oh, so, so that's what I heard. The air seems cleared out. Good thing there was a high wind. I'll close the shutters oh. and draw the curtains. Watson, can you open the door now? Yes, I think so. Phew, my, my knees are still shaking. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. You sent for me? Yes. Come in, Dr. Standale. Come in. Hmm. You, you look rather pale, both of you. Yes. We've uh, just been conducting a little experiment with the poison that killed Tregenis. You? Yes, Dr. Standale. Perhaps you'd like to tell us why you killed Mortimer Tregenis. I? Preposterous. You can't prove it? No. Let me tell you how you did it. You came over to the vicarage late this afternoon. You didn't want anyone to know you'd visited Dragenis. He was to let you in himself. But how could you attract his attention? You brought some pebbles with you, pink pebbles, from a heap beside your house. You threw these at the study window, where you knew Dragenis was working. I found some of these pebbles on the windowsill. Tregenis came downstairs, let you in himself. You had a talk with him, made him light his lamp, placed a pinch of the poison powder in the flame, and left. You're... You're right, Mr. Holmes. I did kill Mortimer Tregenis. But I'm not guilty of the other atrocity. I swear I'm not. I believe you, Dr. Sterndale. But you know who did it. Perhaps you'd better tell us about it. Very well. It was Mortimer Tregenis. What? He admitted it before I... before he died. Mr. Holmes, I've been in love with Brenda Tregenis for many years. We were to have been married when my work in Africa was finished. I've lived so long in places where man is a lord unto himself. He... he killed Brenda in cold blood. He killed her. I have nothing else to live for. By heaven, I'd do it again. How did Mortimer Tregenis get hold of the poison? It was something unusual, almost unknown. Yes, it was powdered pes diable. Pes diable? 
Devil's foot, eh? Yes, a root found in Africa. Shaped like a foot, half human, half goat-like. I have the only specimen in England. And you showed it to Tregenis? Yes, he came over the other afternoon when I was packing. He was interested in my African curiosities, particularly this powder. How he took it, I can't say. I thought no more of the matter until I had received the vicar's telegram and learned how they died. I returned at once. I, looking into the tragedy, I was convinced Mortimer Tregenis was the murderer, that he'd done it to gain control of the family fortune. There was the crime, but what was to be his punishment? What jury would believe such a fantastic story? No. I decided to take the law into my own hands. Perhaps if you ever loved anyone, you'll know how I felt. Hmm. Dr. Sterndale, what were your plans when you set out for Plymouth? I had intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work is only half finished. Go and finish the other half, Dr. Sterndale. I do not feel called upon to prevent you. What a gruesome story, Dr. Watson. Yes, next to the famous Hound of the Basketball Adventure, that was the most gruesome experience that we ever had. There's just one thing I'd like to know. What did you think you saw in that cloud of smoke? Mr. Bell, you'll have to believe me when I tell you it was too horrible to mention. Just to think of it is enough to make my blood run cold. Ladies and gentlemen, in a moment, Dr. Watson will be back to tell us about next week's story. Girls, Powers models are famous for their beauty and charm. And one of their most outstanding characteristics is their glorious, shining, bright hair. Now, here's how they keep it so shining. Powers models use Cremel shampoo. This amazing, beautifying shampoo has been especially developed to actually glamour bathe each tiny strand of hair, revealing all its natural glossy luster. Yes, and don't forget Cremel shampoo is wonderful for washing children's hair, too. Of course it is, because there are no harsh caustics or chemicals in Cremel shampoo. And its luxurious active foam thoroughly cleanses scalp and hair of all loose dandruff as well as the dirt. Girls, if you could only see how Powers Models' hair fairly radiates natural glossy highlights, I'm sure you'd want to try Cremel Shampoo right away. You can get a bottle at any drug counter. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel Shampoo. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week. Next week, I think I'll tell you about the adventure... Of the unfortunate brides. Well, it sounds intriguing, Dr. White. It was, Mr. Bell. It was indeed <laughs> intriguing. It concerned a honeymoon in Scotland and a bridegroom who turned out to be a cold-blooded and ruthless killer. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was adapted by Edith Miser from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Devil's Foot. Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of California Pictures. Tom Conway through the courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. The Sherlock Holmes series is produced by Tom McKnight. This is Joseph Bell speaking for Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo. And inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when Dr. Watson will tell us about the case of the unfortunate brides. <laughs> Thank you.
ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Okay, awesome. I have my hair shampooed with Kremel. I'm all ready to go. It doesn't look gummy. It doesn't look greasy. It looks healthy. I feel great. This is incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Kremel. Thank you, The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We're all set. Okay, so there are certainly more contrasts between the actual short story from 1910 and the radio play. But one thing that really jumped out relative to this podcast's subject matter is that the folkloric detail about the devil living around Mounts Bay in Cornwall is something that was inserted for the radio production and is not in the short story. Conan Doyle doesn't gild the lily that much. He's content to let other atmospheric landscape factors sort of increase the sort of gothic creep out factor of of the story and i've also read that mounts bay is not this ship devouring stormy menace that it's made out to be in both the short story and the radio play another key difference and this maybe relates to the like sort of i don't know the power struggle for top billing in the radio show in the story, Watson is the one who saves them during the experiment with the devil's foot root. In the radio show, it is Holmes who smashes the window to let in this like sort of crazy wind that's going all the time while like Watson's like freaking out with his like devilish hallucination. And what Watson says is different from Holmes, it or I'm sorry, is different from what gets stated in the radio show. This is what Conan Doyle writes. The developments of the drug were not long in coming. I had hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odor, subtle and nauseous. At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond all control. A thick black cloud swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that in this cloud, unseen as yet, but about to spring out, upon my appalled senses lurked all that was vaguely horrible, all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. Vague shapes swirled and swam amid the dark cloud bank, each a menace and a warning of something coming, the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold, whose very shadow would blast my soul. So uh, in the in the radio play, it's it's like the full blown devil that he hears. Like he's talking about hearing the clopping of hooves and smelling fire and brimstone. And Arthur Conan Doyle is a little bit more restrained. It's still it's still creepy. It's still it's still very menacing and scary. But there's a bit more vagueness to this apparition. So those are just like two contrasts to draw out. Um, as, as I said, I'm sure there are more. In terms of interpreting the devil thematics of the story, we get your kind of classic mystery enlightenment plot set up here. Something seems really supernatural and unexplainable to that, you know, such that even reasonable people are convinced 
of course, it's always like the learned clergy who are always getting convinced of this thing, <laughs> these things right off the bat. Like the vicar is like just totally in like, yeah, the devil's killing my parishioners. Watson frequently falls for this stuff too, is, is sort of like sort of uh, moved to question his his senses and his powers of observation. Maybe, I mean, and maybe Watson is channeling more of Conan Doyle himself. Um, but of course, it's always about dispelling the appearance and possibility of a supernatural actor in these stories. You sort of have like the, the Scooby-Doo moment. In spite of this kind of enlightenment plot setup where it's the sort of scientific basis of what's happening is revealed and that's that's sort of the supernatural is sort of waved away that way arthur Conan doyle himself as as i'm sure many of you know was a a noted evangelist for um spiritualism some people say it had to do with the death of his son in world war one but apparently he had been really involved and interested in psychic research and spiritualism uh for over a decade before that and remained a a sort of committed publicist and public intellectual in the service of the spiritualist cause. There are many ways to contextualize that. The development of technologies around the telephone and the phonograph and the photograph and the motion picture technology and sort of the early uses and powers of, of fraud possible with the technology play into the spiritualist phenomenon, though, of course, cannot explain it all. There's also, of course, the fact that there are everyone in the countries that fought for long periods in World War One, like England, like people lost someone like in every family. So it makes sense to have like a spiritual system that purports to put you in contact with all these people who are just vanishing. And so that's just like a little bit way of contextualizing it. But yeah, I, I, I do think that it's interesting that this does sort of follow that enlightenment model. And Arthur Conan Doyle in some, like, seems sort of a little bit impatient and sick of the, the Holmes character's ways and his sort of his, uh, her, his persona. Like he was, he, you know, he kills him off various points, but like it was just too profitable to keep it, to, to let it go. But it, I, you know, it's interesting to me that there is a contrast between the ethos and the personality of Holmes vis-a-vis -vis Conan Doyle himself. So in the story, of course, according to the Enlightenment plot, the devil is not a supernatural monster. So what should we say about the devil instead of the kind of, you know, you know the sort of impossibility that it would be supernatural in this kind of detective story? Well, the sort of easiest answer, right, is it's the the murderous greed of Mortimer, Mortimer Trigenis. This person who kills his family members, is underhanded, plotting, subjects them to insanity and a, and a sort of painful, terrorizing death. Interesting that this murder is, you know, one way, one place we could look at the, the demonic or the diabolic. Professor or Dr. Sterndale is someone else who, you know, ex displays homicidal passions and kills Mortimer in, in revenge. And uh, Holmes is like, go back and keep doing your whatever it is you're doing in, in the Congo area in Central Africa. 
So I think homicidal rage itself is not sufficient for the evil or the personification of evil in this moral universe. I think we need to distinguish between criminality and the diabolic in this particular instantiation of the Holmesian moral universe. The diabolic requires much more, I would say, beyond criminal intent. In both the short story and the radio broadcast, the sense of evil and doom has a lot to do with the history and prehistory of the Cornish landscape. There are hints of Neolithic and Roman ruins that evince some old and terrible past that are starting to sort of weigh upon the, the sort of inhabitants of the region and the visitors are picking up on it. This reminded me of like H.P. Lovecraft's ideas of like these long dead alien civilizations whose sort of deep histories are like hidden and become visible in these sort of terrible epiphanies and show the kind of archaeology of like lost civilizations that are still like ticking like clockwork and determining our our lives. Um, and so there's a little bit of that sort of sense of like historical sublime terror at the ancient designs and powers of, of lost civilizations. Another way this really comes across, and it, this is this is another difference between the radio play, I believe, and the short story. In the short story, one of the things Sherlock Holmes does, because he's like, you know, worked himself and drugged himself nearly to death and he needs this convalescence. One of the things he does to sort of uh, stay active and 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 sort of keep himself occupied and happy is uh, studying the Cornish, Cornish Celtic language. And he convinces himself that because this area was used for tin mining for so long, that it was part of an ancient trade network and that actually the unique features of the Cornish language are from what Holmes calls ancient Chaldean, Babylonian, or actually Aramaic, the language that, that Jesus would have spoken. So we have that kind of ancient, another ancient civilizational root in here. And again, sort of, it does interesting things. It sort of shows or, or recapitulates the imperial span of Victorian England in a weird way that there is like this Babylonian past within the island of, of England itself. So the land, the sort of the, the, the hidden, the sort of the mysteries of the landscape are maybe not straightforwardly evil, but are part of um, a, an atmosphere that is well staged, a, a sort of environment that's like sort of well staged for witnessing a kind of encounter between good and evil, I would say. I would say like in terms of the, the crucial ingredient that makes this properly diabolical, it's actually the, the root the the radix pedis diaboli the the sort of the devil's foot root is actually the key ingredient the sort of the weapon of the murderer is actually the key ingredient that makes this a story about the devil in a sort of interesting way you may recall the appearance of the root itself has a kind of monstrous quality it resembles a kind of hybrid goat human feature like that's sort of like this, this giant root and it sort of looks like this weird form evil is given a physical form in in this root 
the Radix Petis Diabli is fictitious. In the story, according to the story, it's a drug used for ordeals in the Ubangi country, which is to say in Central Africa. The Ubangi is a tributary to the Congo, which today separates the Central African Republic from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so um, we're getting a like sort of a link into Europe's colonial drives and ambitions in in naming it as such. But it's fictitious. Does this have does this fictitious root have any any antecedents? Any any sort of true antecedents in the sense that these things actually exist? Well, there's actually a really great piece about this by Professor Arabj Chatterjee on how the root actually resembles most clearly the aconite root from from the South Asian subcontinent peninsula. So there's like a displacement of of colonial settings. It's not the sort of imagined tribal customs of Africa. It is instead, you know, the sort of the crown jewel of the Victorian Empire, India, that is the home of this, of a root that does things that are sort of resemble what the devil's root is supposed to do, what devil's foot is supposed to do. Um, this is what Chatterjee says. So there are insufficient grounds to claim that devil's foot root was a wholly fictional fragment of Doyle's imagination. Its spectral epidemiological tentacles are dispersed across the Holmesian canon, prominently in the adventures of the dying detective. Here, Holmes nearly dies of an out-of-the-way Asiatic disease known as Tanupoli fever. So, like, one of the things that Chatterjee sort of picks up on is that drugs, diseases, all these things that sort of come from the Orient, come from colonial possessions, they keep cropping up in Sherlock Holmes' stories as this kind of ominous warning about the fate of the British Empire or, or something like that. He continues, whether as reminders of Tonga's darts, Tonga is like this this sort of really super racist villain in The Sign of Four, Himalayan poisons, tropane alkaloids, or eastern tropical contagions, ghosts of the idea of the British Indian Empire, surveilled and sanitized of invasive threats and all proverbial sunsets lurk with Holmesian toxicology. This is a great piece. This guy is clearly a professor of English just by what was going on with the language in the diction here. He continues, what we can conclude is that Doyle's literary imagination was haunted by the, spe- by the specters of Indian subalternity. As many scholars have reported, the Sherlock Holmes canon masks, masks many moments of unconscious fear over the strategic weaponization of tropical infections and contagions brought by imperial traffic and the threat of the Axis powers appropriating Eastern toxins for biochemical warfare. Something that you often see in humanities scholarship is the idea that representations are expressing an unconscious or repressed fear. Sometimes I wonder, maybe these fears are actually not unconscious or subconscious. Maybe they are just, maybe they're just right out in the open. Maybe it's just a, a sort of unreflective uh, psychoanalytic habit to assume that they are subconscious. Anyway, Laura Otis sees Sherlock Holmes as an amalgamation of a virologist, an imperial leucocyte, or antibody, sticking closely to the infiltrator he detects. In that, he mirrors the immune system of the empire. Sherlock Holmes is like the white blood cells of the British Empire. Yet the scientific modernity that the immune Holmesian body promises is often subverted by Eastern drugs and toxic, and toxic substances. 
So the devil does more work here than just getting unmasked as this sort of cheap Scooby-Doo villain, some brother, some greedy, psychotic brother. It's a way of representing anxious visions and odors of imperial demise. Evil exists less as a personified spiritual being, but as the concretely deadly power of ungovernable colonies, colonies that are about to be lost. So, yeah, I there's it's actually in many ways a rich text, you know, pulp genre fiction of a sort of pseudo highbrow um, tenor. But yeah, like the fact that Arthur Conan Doyle himself was deeply invested in the supernatural gives the thing a whole different kind of pitch. It's not clear to me that Conan Doyle's spiritualism had much of a room for uh, personified spiritual malevolent evil characters. Although he did, it, I did read someplace that he thought that some forms of mental illness could be chalked up to spirit possession, which might gesture towards that. You, you know, mostly the sort of the payoff for spiritualism was more positive and, you know, and, and much sadder in, in terms of dealing with loss and dealing with people who had, who had died and making and having contact with them. There's something also, I think, to come back, I mean, there was a lot of sort of like lit theory language in those quotes I read, but the idea that the diabolic, the demonic is captured or embodied in inert substances, substances that sort of come to life and do horrible things when they're subjected to like scientific processes. That's like almost a, a vision of like demons caught up in the physical stuff of nature that like they're sort of chained in the mountains like Ajidaka in the mountains outside Tehran but that if you sort of subject them to the right kinds of stimulation all kinds of hell can be set loose and I think that that's sort of an old and a new idea it's old you know it's it's old it's it's in Zoroastrianism but it's it's a different it's very different than what we've seen so far. It's very different from Midwinter of the Spirit, where you have this sort of uh, overwrought Satanist conspiracy. And of course, as uh, Chatterjee points out, it's it's not incidental that this is that this sort of the concretization, the materialization of evil, is a materialization with a colonial context, an imperial context. So I think we've weathered the storm. The wind is still up, but we can begin to venture forth confident that the devil is not lurking over the side of the cliff, but in reality is incarnated in the root systems and vines of poison ivy beneath my feet. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this, this bonus episode. And we'll be talking to you in in not too long about a couple of police devil thrillers i'll i'll do i'll do both parts here thanks for listening and see you next time this pod is made possible by support from the satanic horde asmodeus mammon leviathan beelzebub and listeners like you thank you Thank you.